Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. My name is David Breer from 11FS, and today I'm delighted to talk with Andy McGuire. Andy, you've got a pretty short job title, but a very impressive one. You're the COO globally for HSBC. That's right. Tell us a bit more about your background. We'll get into the HSBC in a little bit, but how did you get to where you are? Born and bred in Ireland, uh, university in Dublin, engineer mathematician by background. So proper pointy head, um, really, a long time ago, was never really any good. As my brother and father would say, um, I'm not a real engineer, all, all good on paper, but can't hammer a nail in straight. Um, went into banking, loved it, really enjoyed it, did all sorts of stuff. Um, went into consulting as much because I couldn't keep changing things back in the, I started in the late 80s, went early 90s, you had to do the same thing over and over again. I thought that was going to be boring. Went into consulting to do stuff. Yeah. So uh, my, the best thing, best description of all of that is my daughter. I remember telling her telling uh, some friends, daddy sleeps in planes and fixes banks. <laughs> now daddy sleeps in planes and fixes HSBC. I, I'm a real oddball. I love banking. I'm really interested in how the plumbing and wiring works. I always have been. I think it's really interesting. I know it's a limited minority sport, but I do. I'm, I love it. I've got the best job in the world, so can't complain. That's great. So with the climate we're in now, you know the job you're doing. It must be the best time to do that ever, right? It probably is, actually, because a lot of things that used to be impossible are really hard are now at least possible, and there's real opportunity to do things. And in some ways, it couldn't, with the benefit of three and a half years' hindsight, couldn't have picked a better time to do it and uh, we made a lot of progress so that's thrilling too so yeah so how is digital transformation at hsbc going like you say the pace is picking up more and more but how are you seeing this changing the effect of what hsbc strategy is it's a big part of what we do um honestly three and a half years ago we were at one level very behind actually our underlying functionality wasn't shabby at all but we were really hard to do business with. So our mantra for the last three and a half years has been simpler, better, faster. That's what we're about. A lot of that's been about access. So we're one of the biggest users of biometrics in the world, touch ID, voice ID, to get it easier to get into the stuff. And then the folks have done a fantastic job of really surfacing what was quite good functionality and just making it way, way easier to use. Our apps back in 2015 were one, one and a half on the app store, now they're four and a half plus everywhere. You know, it's fantastic. Hong Kong, we've gotten the number four and the number 10 app, or at least we did last week when I was there, across all categories, right? So way ahead of all the social media things, which is thrilling. Um, our Chinese app, which is this actually the same as the rest of the global stuff, but it has a proper Chinese interface. It looks and feels like uh, Ali or we or whatever. You know, I'm really, really proud of what they've done. And we've done the same thing in the corporate space. I know you had Niall here a few weeks ago. You know, it's really good. And our customers are thrilled with it. And our frontline colleagues are super happy because they don't have to apologize for it anymore. So I'm really proud of it. We've loads more to do. I would say we're less than halfway and all of that stuff. But I'm really proud of that from a front end point of view. And then we've done tons of digitization so back from that front end stuff whether it's robotic process automation machine learning ai all of those things we're you know whittling away at the big old machine and trying to get it modernized as fast as we can it's a pretty big challenge isn't it people often talk about changing the wheel whilst you're hurtling down that motorway i was in hong kong recently and saw that you guys had done some really interesting apps the payment splitting app focusing on really the jobs that people need to do rather than just things that you think they should be 
and that's gone really well, hasn't it? Oh, it's brilliant. No, no, I mean, it, 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 it's for us, it's super important that we dominate that social payment space. We want to, for our customers with such big share, we've got to be at least as good as all the things that everybody else there uses. Yeah. So, you know, Ali's ubiquitous, we pays ubiquitous. We, we've got to be at least as good as those guys. So it's a really high bar and it forces us to be really good and push really hard all the time. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. So, you know, that competitive threat just pushes you to be better, faster all the time. And, um, you know, touch wood, so far so good. The guys are doing a great job. So really pleased with it. It's a continued exercise in integration at this stage, isn't it? The beautiful thing about the landscape, though, is that we're facing into so many amazing things that are kind of coming through. How are you moving forwards as an organization and integrating these technologies back into the business? Yes, it's actually, I don't think it's as hard as changing an engine on a jumbo jet while it's flying, in a sense. I mean, it's not a bad analogy in some ways, but. But well, it also Jumbo has two engines, yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> the last time, hopefully, the ones I got. <laughs> but we are so big and complicated with so many different things. We can pick off a, a big piece and do it. So actually, that de-risks it for us. We're we're not just one bank in one country. Uh, so that's great. So we can we can do a a big trial in quite a big market, prove that it works, and then use it elsewhere. So that de-risks a bit bit for us. Um, and it makes things so much better that the relative the risk of not doing something is at least as high of do, as doing something. So again, I wouldn't exaggerate how hard it is. It's not easy. I think, as you say, it's really a systems integration job these days. So it's, we're we're not trying to. We used to be famous for you know knitting our own from scratch, and that, like it's definitely not the way to go. I really think HSBC is one of the best places for fintechs to come and get rich. We have loads of $50 million, $100 million, $200 million problems. If we can find somebody really gifted and cool who can help us fix that, um, I'm more than happy to write a check instead of doing it myself. Uh, You know, a lot of my engineers would love to do it, but we don't need to do it all ourselves. So if we can uh, pick some great components, put them together, use our skills to do the integration part rather than starting from scratch, we really don't want to invent technology at all or very, in a very limited way. We want to exploit it on behalf of our customers. That's what we're, we're really about. So, and that's what we've done. It's fab. And so we do integrate lots and lots of fintech components. I mean, I think the, the thing for me is we have to find things that really work everywhere. So you're right. If I had a dollar for every, every I've got the answer to all your problems, I'd be retired already. Um, and it's equally true. People come and say, I've got the best, whatever. And my point often is, like you may do, but I needed to work in 67 countries. Yeah. I needed to work in different regulatory regimes. and So sometimes we use not quite the best technology, but it's the best technology that works everywhere because I can't have 19 different biometric solutions or 23 different cybersecurity answers or whatever. Yeah. I, I need to choose the best fit across now, sometimes you just have to go best of breed in a specific place, but I can't have the very best of everything everywhere because it's just too, we're complicated enough. I don't need to make it any worse. Yeah, it's, it really is an interesting one, isn't it? Like you say, the, the, the standards are being, you know, for such a large organization, standards are being set globally now, aren't yeah. they? Which is really, really exciting. Again, it makes it very difficult for new technology sometimes because obviously there's a bit of a chicken and egg, isn't it? it? Like it might be wonderful, but until you can prove it at scale that a bank like HSBC would require, then it's... But I, I guess the the point that you made earlier on about you've got what uh, was it 76 or more countries that 67 you're in? 67 today. countries that you're in i have to think about it every day <laughs> yeah. so being you know being in that many countries you can isolate opportunities can't you and you know 
what somebody would test in the Midlands, you would test in a country, which yeah. is amazing, isn't yeah. it, really? That's right. And it's both good and bad. So is that positive aspect of it? Um, but the hard thing is I need to find things that can work everywhere. So, you know, I, I can't take a single country to the cloud. Yeah. I have to take a big slug of my data centers to the cloud and lift a whole bunch of components across countries. It would be lovely if everybody had the same rules and regs for how that works, <laughs> but it, do- it doesn't work out that way. Um, so we're really trying to lead the way in getting a bit of alignment across the regulatory regime to get big chunks of what we do. The first thing we would probably do is our analytic stuff because it doesn't have personally identifiable information because then that's much easier whether you're thinking about GPTR or any of those things in a particular jurisdiction. Uh, and then we'll go at it a chunk at a time, but trying to be consistent across the countries because doing every jurisdiction in a different way, oh man, that's too hard. Yeah, I imagine it's um, it's that old kind of adage of, you know, 80% of the, the effort is sort of adhering to the regulations and 20% is doing the thing that you need to. But when you're doing it in 76 different countries, then, uh, sorry, 67 different countries, I'm going to get that right at some point. I'm going to start saying 76. Yeah, I know. Well, I've just expanded you by uh, by a few countries, which is pretty good going. But um, I, I guess one of the, the major trends that we're seeing, obviously, with everything that's happened with, well, PSD2 and now open banking, obviously, in the UK, how are you guys kind of adapting to that? Because I guess whereas, as you were saying, trying to do things from a global perspective, you know, very much the UK is leading when it comes to API exposure and everything that that entails. So how are you adapting that model to, to open banking? So for us, open banking, is a ma- we see it as a massive opportunity. Some people see it as a threat. I don't think that that's right. Um, I think we really need to press on with it. Um, in our home markets, Hong Kong and the UK, Mexico, like that, but, but every, everywhere. We have a relatively small share actually in lots, in lots of the markets we operate in. So at one level, not surprisingly, we're, we're almost an attacker. So if, if our digital stuff is as good as we think it is and we can make it open, then we should win just as much as any fintech. Yeah. So that'd be cool. So we are pretty positive about that. We, we don't know how it play out, but we're going to take a positive attitude to it. And actually we think, there's no point taking a negative attitude. This is going to happen. You know, yes, it's happening here f- first-ish, but it's going to happen everywhere. And hoping it's going to go away isn't very sensible. So we've already actually well ahead of any legislation. We went open in France last year um, using fintech components um, to do that just to see how it would work. Uh, we have a great franchise there. We're now applying the same logic here. So in the UK, we have our if you like, normal app, which is HSBC for HSBC customers. Then we've connected money, which is uh, used to be called Beta, which actually allows you to do your everyday banking, not just for HSBC, but across other banks. Mm -hmm. Um, We think probably that what we've done is roughly what people want, which is if you try and put all of the functionality all the way down the product stack Mm -hmm. into a sort of super aggregator app. It's just too hard for everybody to use. So we've built one that's kind of everyday banking. So uh, current account, savings account, uh, personal loans, credit cards, that sort of thing. The stuff that people do most and most of the time. Mm -hmm. The feedback we've had from customers is if they want to do more complicated stuff like wealth management, mortgage, whatever, they're, they're happy to go to the specific one that does that. And actually trying to build an app across multiple institutions and typically the you know for an average customer three four or five that does every product every way everywhere like that's really hard Mm. and it's actually hard to get the customer trained because we have 
you know, that's what we're doing, right? Yeah. We're we're retraining behavior by making it easy. But if it isn't easy, they won't change the behavior. So there's a delicate balancing point. And the same is true with our just HSBC digital stuff, which is the more you put in it, in some ways you create the barriers to entry for people really embracing it. Yeah. So giving the stuff that people want to see all the time everywhere, getting everybody used to that and then extending it bit by bit by bit is we think the way to go and of course that but the engineers are dying to put all the new functionality on but then it can just be a bit too much for people sure. so it's amazing a real human dynamic there yeah it's, a, it's amazing how much how true that is you know i know when i worked in uh back in lloyd's banking group the even positive changes sometimes people just don't like change do they yeah. you know so um you know slowly bringing in that functionality and, you know, that pace in the same way as actually technology firms would, you know, you don't see Apple doing nothing for three years and then dropping something that looks completely different. They're continually incrementing through not only the operating system, but the hardware as well. But um, so that's, that's really interesting. The, I guess the, you know, the, the context of those things really is very unique to being a very large banking organization as well. You know, one of the advantages that some of the, you know, the the sort of challenger banks have is that they don't really do a great deal at this instance. So, you know, navigational problems on a small screen is relatively straightforward if you're not doing much. Um, when you're a big universal bank with all of the products and all of the services, it's a little bit more complicated, right? It is. And, and not all of those things actually digitize very well, right? You don't want to have a discussion about a family member's bereavement on over a with a chatbot, right? <laughs> Lasting power of attorney, kind of difficult to digitize. I agree. You know, there's there's a bunch of things. We we still think the future of banking for quite a long time is a multi-channel experience. It should be mobile first. Probably eighty or ninety percent of everything we would love to see there, because frankly, it's better for everybody. It's better for our customers. It's better for us. It's better for frontline colleagues. It's easier to get consistency, fast turnaround times, lower costs, which of course can be passed on and benefits to customers. But there's some stuff that's actually really hard. And uh, m- trying to make people do that on a small screen, <laughs> screen on a uh, on a smartphone, that's not smart. Yeah. So we don't try to do that. And, and maybe as things progress, some of those things will get easier and then we'll be able to put them in. But we definitely don't want to put off our customers by confronting them with what looks like a scary app that's not helpful so we've got i think much better getting attuned to how much change at any given point in time is a good thing for them um it used to be because we didn't have enough change built now we actually have more change built than we can immediately deploy which is good so we have a backlog of things to you know bring forward all the time nice place to be it is Um, a good place to be i i I think the um there's a sort of a a bit of a preoccupation with you know, millennials want to do everything in the digital sense. And one of the, I I said to you before we started this, I I watched some of your videos on YouTube and you're a funny guy. Like one of the things I found particularly entertaining was the, you know, the older people get, the more they look like old people. Like, and actually the, the tendency to, you know, think, in three, four, five years' time, everybody's going to be doing everything digitally. It's just, I think, a complete fallacy. So I definitely agree. No, like I'm I'm with you because, you know, I have two daughters who are millennials. Their their financial lives are relatively straightforward, and it all takes place on a mobile phone. So that's great and fine. But it, but even they have found some things actually. The mobile phone isn't the best and only way of doing things. Um, but as their lives get more complicated, as they um, get into partnerships, have families, buy homes, need a pension, some of those and like it, it it's not an it's not a good thing. Like I would love a lot of those products to be a lot simpler. 
But a lot of those products are the way they are, not because we make them that way, but because that's the legislation or the sales process, a lot of which is driven by regulation, which is not a moment regulator, it's just the way it is. Mm. And that means it's sometimes not the right or only way to do it. And as you get more sophisticated needs, you have more sophisticated problems. And I think some of our best competition around the world who've tried to get rid of branches, contact centers, et cetera, et cetera, they find there's been a limit to that. And and there are just things, some things that it's much easier to have a conversation with somebody about. And one of my, one of my best asks of the fintech world, I think, I always get the question, you know, we talk about the 50, 100, 200 million dollar problems, you know, so what is it? What can I do for you? I'm like, um, so if you could just tootle off and bring me back an optimizer for credit cards, personal loans and overdrafts, and I would love to write you a big check. And I get the same response. Already. Yeah, great. No problem. I'll be back to you in a few days. And then you bump into them at, you know, Money 2020 or one of the events that you guys run or at and say, uh, how are you getting on with my problem? And Ooh, it was a bit harder than we thought. <laughs> it's like, really? Yeah. It turns <laughs> out banking's quite complex. Who right? would have thought? Because <laughs> yeah. at one level, it's a, you know, in mathematical terms, it's a straightforward, logical, linear uh, programming exercise, right? Mm. There's a, each one is a different price yep. and da, da, but actually there's a lot more to it than that. Those people have those products for different emotional reasons. Uh, all those facts that you do the linear programming on are true at that moment in time when you do it. But of course it changes through the month. People have more or less money in their account. They use or don't use their overdraft. They know, but you don't know when they're going, going to go on holiday. They know, but you don't know. You, yes, of course, you could ask them questions and have clever prompts, data-driven, this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. about when they might buy their next car. Some people like to pay off their car as a separate thing. They don't like to do it from, you know, yeah, all of that stuff. And I do have an app for that. Mm. But that app is called John or Jane or Juan or Jun mm. or whatever, because they can have a conversation with another human being and kind of really understand what they're trying to do and where they are in their life and then make good recommendations that I'm very confident that we get very good conduct outcomes as well, where the hindsight risk of something going badly wrong, you could say, oh, surely you could train a robot to do that. Um, We've given that a go. That's true. But then sometimes it's hard to be able to prove that you made the right decision for the right reason the right way, right? So in a boring, old-fashioned, logical thing where you could put the model in and you knew what the rules were, yeah. you can prove you did the right thing. I agree. But in something where you're getting a machine to con- constantly learn, mm. once it starts doing that, you're not quite sure what it's learned. Exactly. How can you <laughs> evidence that? And yeah, it's, and it's a difficult tough. thing. Yeah. yeah. Facing, so, uh, like, I, I love to hear what the FCA say about that one at some point, but it'll be very interesting. Like you say, a, a basic decision tree, you can evidence. Um, yeah. If it thinks on its own, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. But uh, I, I think the, um, you know, there's there's sort of all these different types of technologies coming through. I think, you know, covering what we've said about APIs and open banking and, you know, various other things that are happening in the fintech space. Blockchain is one that's getting a lot of attention oh right now. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in various different guises and various different layers in that, uh, you know, you've got some people saying it's the, you know, the next coming of, uh, of the internet to uh, a bunch of people saying it's, you know, it's something that actually will just break when we start to use it at scale. Um, where are you guys at with that? Because I, I guess it's, 
it's not just one thing, is it? It's many. No, it's lots of things. So, look, there's a lot of quips around this, um, some of which I sort of agree with. You know, So one, one of our tech advisory board members um, said to me a couple of months ago, the reason that the blockchain exists is so bankers can talk about proofs of concept that they're doing with it. <laughs> and, and at one level, he's not wrong. Yeah. We, we are pretty skeptical in cryptocurrencies per se. We, we don't hold them. We don't trade them, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that's relatively immature. And I think the legislative and regulatory changes that are coming on the whole are good. I mean, money's a serious thing and it needs some guide rails, right? And maybe it doesn't need all the guide rails of traditional money, but it needs some guide rails. But on the other hand, we're super excited about some distributed ledger technology. So, we are modernizing our trade finance business globally. We're doing tons of work here and in Singapore and Hong Kong. Distributed ledger technology is a great answer to that. So there are multiple parties, you know, buyers, suppliers, lawyers, shippers, shipping agents, ports, you name it, all sorts of structured and unstructured information, all sorts of transition states. So mm. quantity, quality, actually price foreign exchange so that sort of thing where everybody wants to share the same thing but that thing is changing all the time it looks like it solves a real problem it's doing a real job and lots of other things when we look at it it's like you, you know i'm you know, i'm i'm trying not to be an old fashioned stick in the mud but you kind of go why wouldn't an ordinary database do that just just as well and to your point much faster much less expensive with mm. much more certainty yeah so it's a real mix for us. We we are involved in some of the things that, you know, more edgy, the R3 uh, consortium and all the rest, because we really, we, we, I don't think you can ever write off a technology. You can't decide it at a point in time and it's done. Yeah. Um, we've decided on cryptocurrency that we won't hold it ourselves or trade it because we're not sure about how that would produce good outcomes for our customers mm-hmm. and keep them safe and protect their money. And we take the trusted position we've got really seriously but it doesn't mean that if we get it to work for trade, we mightn't get it to work for payments. So Chris Larson, the Ripple uh, chairman, he happens to be one of my tech advisory board members. You know, he's at us all the time. I'm, I'm still not quite sure whether it's the answer to international payments, but it might be. We'll see. You know, so we'll keep looking and poking. We'll experiment. We'll participate. When we're sure it's an answer to something, we'll use it. When we're not sure, we'll just watch it and yeah and participate it make, makes total sense and I, and I don't think um i don't think really any technology is going to be a panacea answer to fix all of the problems in all the regards so you know i think understanding it and having it in your tool set when an opportunity comes up to use it yeah. makes total sense but i agree with you i think in many instances a database does what you need to to do so i, th- I think in that, those particular use cases where you're looking at like say um asset management and uh you know very very large scale the the number of players that need to be on board and with that and you're talking about huge multinational companies yeah. like you know the process for getting all of this moving and getting it set up is is going to take a while but um arguably you can save billions at that point though if if that uh, if that really comes to life but you, you're right you really do never need everybody lined up now now to be fair distributed ledger technology needs less agreement than a traditional structured database you don't have to get everything lined up and agreed sure. but you need some things lined up and agreed so it it does help a bit but but those agreements for the global businesses, asset management, sales and trading, payments, trade finance, they're not easy, right? And, you know, 
something like Swift, which has been around for a long time, it takes a long time. And it's not because we're not trying to play nice. So it's just us banks in Swift. <laughs> it's not like we're not trying to play nice. With each other. We are actually trying to agree things, but it can take years to get rel- what looks like relatively simple things agreed because it, there are costs. And then, as you say, the, the other problem is all these new things. In the short term, it's just more cost. Mm. Um, until you can rip something out, a blockchain trading platform, a payments platform, it's not better, it's worse because it's more cost in the short term until you get the old stuff out. I think that's that's something that a lot of people don't realize when they're looking at big organizations is that, you know, sometimes the, just like I say, layering in more operational cost is definitely not the answer. You know, like in no instance, you know, I don't know what the question was, but that's definitely not the answer. So so I think being in a situation where you can show material uh, operational cost reduction, as well as the the customer experience improvements that you can make around, and and that's the challenge, isn't it? You've got that. Uh, you've got to hold both those things at the same time in the role that you've got. You know, it's not like, you know, Tom Blomfield or Anne Bowden where they can they can actually go. You know, I'm doing this from scratch, and it's a completely new thing. What what do you want to have, guys? Like, uh, it's a very different world, isn't it? it Although is. I guess in in those two instances, they haven't touched this this type of technology either, have they? So maybe there's a it's just not ready yet, right? I'm not sure. It's you know prime time. I, you know, my colleagues um, pull my leg. You know, my favorite three words are no, nothing, and not. <laughs> and and it's true because you're absolutely right. We we have to. All of this is great because it should make things simpler, better, and faster for customers. But so it starts with the customer, always for us, not never with the technology. Can't I mean because the technology issue is all there, or at least we don't want to be inventing or at the bleeding edge of it. So it's got to work for the customer, but then it's it net can't be more money. It can be more money on the new stuff, but the old stuff's got to go away. Yeah. And that's true whether it's distributed ledger, cloud, biometrics whatever. Now, we're in the happy situation of having quite a lot of old technology still, despite all the great new things we've done, and quite a lot of you know traditional processes that are quite clerical in nature, where there's opportunities to make things much more efficient and to reduce costs. So that actually, being a big organization, gives you sort of pools of cost that you can um, automate and make better and therefore f- afford these new things. If you're brand new, you have to take a really careful choice which is you've got proven technology but it's not as sexy interesting and exciting or you've got the new stuff but it has to work Mm. it has to really work and it's got to really work for customers it's not not just because it's new and shiny and i do you know some of my engineers and digital colleagues get a bit cross with me because i talk about silver bubbles like i don't want any silver bubbles i want stuff that really customers love And it doesn't have to be that exciting. I met a guy this morning who thinks the most important thing that we do is a thing called Global View, Global Transfer. So if you're a premier customer anywhere in the world, you can see your accounts in multiple jurisdictions and move money with no foreign exchange costs at all. Wow. You know, no transfer wise, no mm. revolute, no cost. Yep. He banks with us because nobody else does it. Mm. And we've been doing it for years, long before the latest digital mobile revolution, you could do it on good old-fashioned internet banking. It's things like that. That wasn't a big project with a big budget, whatever, but it has an amazingly positive impact on our either international or internationally orientated customers where they think it's a hugely important feature. Mm. Now, that's not a hugely important feature if you're Lloyds Bank here in the UK, probably, and it's not a big deal if you're Intesa in Italy, but it's a big deal for us. And, And it's 
Our job is to find out those things that our customers really care about and then build them, not to build the things we'd like to play with and then, then try and sell them. Yeah. And, you know, as an engineer, I loved building stuff and clever bits. But if nobody wants it, it's not worth anything. I agree. Yeah, it's fixing real problems. That's that's that absolute key. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. I guess, um, you know, something that I've seen a lot in um, appointments and announcements recently is the um, increasing the amount of female representation in HSBC. It's, uh, you know, it seems to be like a, um, not just sort of talking about it, but actually doing something yeah. about it. We're um, deadly serious. We, we actually, um, we got the, had the pleasure of talking to the uh, Deputy Mayor of London this week. And um, he was, you know, saying how organizations within London are taking real steps to, to sort of make, uh, not just from a, a gender perspective, but diversity of all types. So h- how are you guys going about that? Because it seems like, you know, real change is happening. Yeah, it is. Um, oh, across the bank. So John, our new chief executive, one of the first things he did was committed himself to 30% and then to keep on pushing. And, and that's not enough. And I get reminded about that every day. My much more successful and clever wife pointed out my two daughters who point out that it's a man's world and it's all wrong and it needs fixed remind me every day every day every day (laughs) Um, and the same is true at work I'm lucky in operations and technology we're actually quite balanced but not at the senior ranks so we have a cast iron rule that we try and appoint in our top three ranks 50% women into every role because if we just wait for the natural flow through to come through it'll take too long it's not good enough so it's very very serious job to be done it's easier for me in operations because as it happens, that's a natural flow through and apparently it's much harder in technology, but I won't have it. And, you know, the whole technology team, many of are women as well, will point out that there are less engineers, mathematicians, you know, physics graduates, whatever it is. And I'm like, I don't care. We only need 20,000 of them and there are many millions in the world. Sure. So we've got to go after them. So we are deadly, deadly, deadly serious about it. You know, we, we've got really focused on the women's issue because we're a big, complicated organization. And if you start to water it down with this, that, and the other thing, then very quickly, you don't really do anything. And ev- everybody sort of feels warm and fuzzy as an individual because they're doing something, but you're not really moving it forward. Personally, I've, I spent my spare time and personal time on LGBTQ issues because I, I, I did in my previous job and I'm still very passionate about that. And so what I've said to all of my team at every level, which is, of course, it's fine to worry about BME, LGBTQ, uh, you name it. All those things are valid, differently abled. But we collectively, as a business, as a team, we're going to make big progress on the women's issue. Because if we don't all get focused on one big goal, we're not going to move it forward. It doesn't mean everything else doesn't matter. And I, I do get emails and calls and why not this and why not that. And it's a valid question, and I give them the same explanation I give to you, which is, as soon as I say, and, 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 I know the impact will be diluted and diluted and diluted. And we've just got to crack. It's 50% of the world's population, and it's not good enough. We need to make progress. 
I completely agree. Uh, it's um, it's really it's a, such a difficult thing because I don't think there's a uh, a single answer to how that change comes about. And it's not just a I don't believe it's a you know a switch that can be flicked to make changes. It's a you know people need role models. People need it's a generational thing really because I think we need it's educational. It's it's having uh, younger people having role models within engineering within technology to really aspire to be at that level with those roles. Um, I, we. We um, spoke recently to uh, Alison Rose at uh, RBS, yeah. uh, who said the exact same thing. You know, she didn't think it was one thing. It's not no, it's some not. conspiracy that, in her mind. And, and the only thing that worries me about that is, in some ways, that can almost feel like a set of excuses. And I know you weren't making them, and, no. and it, but it's just not good enough. You have yeah. to start, and and the getting people in the head is easy, right? The, I I don't meet anybody who logically has a problem with this. But you've got to get them in the heart and the gut to really get things to happen. Because otherwise it's just too easy to rationally agree and then not do anything about it. And I think there are things that that we we can do and are doing. So one of the things that drives me nuts is things like performance evaluation and promotion. So performance evaluation, the sort of formats are typically written in what I would describe as broadly male language. So, so it's male attributes are the things that are most important. And the things in sort of grey italics at the bottom of every box are, are the you know so-called female ones. Mm. But some of those softer things I think are super important. Like in a world where we're trying to, we at least, are trying to get tens of thousands of people working in a distributed agile mode, I need people who are great team players, great listeners, great coaches, all those things. Mm-hmm. And some of those things aren't high enough up the priority list and performance evaluation. So we're trying to get some of that changed. So that brings those things to the fore. And then on promotions, what I find hilarious is, and I, I hate caricatures, but this one I think is broadly valid. Put a 10-point criteria on the table, give it to a guy and give it to a woman. The guy will broadly say, yep, got it. Take all 10, ready for the job. The woman will look at it and go, yeah, well, um, yeah, one through five, you know, I have a solid track record. I can really show evidence in that two of those, you know, they're on my development plan. I'm working on them. I'm not quite in those three. Well, you know, I'm not too sure. Mm. And at one level can talk themselves out of the job. But for me, we need to flip it from the interviewer and have the interviewers. And we're doing this with the men and the women, which is to the people who come in and say, yeah, I've got all 10. Mm. Ask them really tough questions about whether they really do. Because normally yeah. the man who says, I've got all 10, has four plus two and a bit of yeah. two more. And the woman who self-critically has said, I've got five plus two and I'm not sure about three, actually has normally underscored herself. Yeah. And actually you find out the opposite is true, which is the woman is actually better qualified, has greater self-awareness, is more ready for the job. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it? Those it's the tiny nuances in those processes that make the collective difference, isn't it, over that time period? And if that's been the case for such a long time, then unpicking a lot of that is really, really hard. But uh, it's great to see, you know, real sort of change actually happening in an, in such a big organisation. Because, like yeah. you say, you you guys are global, like yeah. properly global. So it will make such a massive difference to so many different countries to bring about that. And that that's the other thing that drives me nuts. I mean, some of the countries we operate in, we are better than where you wouldn't expect, we're better than the places you would expect is better. So we, we have a um, a significant stake in a bank in Saudi Arabia, mm. not a famously diverse place. Mm. I am delighted to say that my leadership team is 60-40. Now, it's still only 60-40 mm-hmm. men to women, 
but I'll take 60-40 in Saudi Arabia and push it. I wish I could say all my leadership teams in all my countries that are, you know, more liberal, advanced, whatever whatever label you were, 60-40, because if it was 60-40 everywhere, I'd be in a better place than I am now. For sure. Across the world. So there's just no excuse. We need to get on and get this done. Yeah. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Um, you know, throughout this you know this whole interview the you know technology plays such a, a kind of a low light to real sort of cultural transformation whether it be through diversity or you know openness to different ways of working that feels like the you know the major barrier for really big organizations i guess it's for not just in banking but every big organization you know keeping that culture one to to move forwards and you know deal with new challenges that's the key right it is so our new chief executive uh, John talks about the healthiest human system in the financial industry, and he's deadly serious about it. It'll take him, as he says, every day that he's CEO, whether that's you know six years or eight years or ten years or you know until he retires. And I think that that's true. And and funny enough, the thing that we're putting as much effort into as into anything else across the whole business globally is our way, what we call ways of working, and it's not some you know short manifesto that makes us more googly or something we're really having a good hard think of you know who's on what how do we do things how do we have conversations how do we have tough conversations that don't get personal how do we make some of these diverse things easier to do it's hard work none of it's brain surgery it's actually the answers as we work through them are nearly always simple Mm. But doing it is hard. Yeah. Doing it every day, doing it consistently, not letting it slip. That's the hard bit. And I think every organ and this is not true about old organizations like us or versus new. It's dead easy as some of the digital giants in California proved it's dead easy to get into bad habits. Yeah. And it's really hard to get out of them. Mm. Now, we've 152 years of history and we've got some bad habits. We need to break those. But you can be two years old or seven years old or 14 years old and have even worse badly ingrained habits. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot to do, but it unlocks so much energy and potential. It's, it's worth it all the time because it's so much easier to get stuff done if your ways of working work. Completely agree. Um, few questions about you now because sure. um, we always kind of like to um, get a bit more of an understanding on on some of the your your practices so I guess starting with you know you've got a, a very large global team yep. uh, how do you go about sort of motivating that team <laughs> are you a yeah. stick or a, or a, a character nah, guy? Prob- which one probably not very well is what the team would say <laughs> um, I tr- my philosophy is real simple high stretch high support um, most of my t- direct team I, so I have 24 people on my direct team um most of them want that a couple don't so that's fine i can operate in a different mode for them but the rest of them really want to get stuff done and perform at high pace not everybody does need to recognize that and sometimes maybe i'm not very good at recognizing that so high stretch high support so we do set ourselves big hairy audacious goals and we go for them and fair dues to them we've hit um most of them on the nose or overachieved them we feel in the odd thing here and there too, but everybody's human. And try and do that in a very supportive way. We work a lot on holding each other accountable. So it's not about me as a leader. It's about a team ethic. So we we have a lot of constructive conflict. We work hard on what we call passionate, unfiltered debate. As you can imagine, I enjoy that. <laughs> but everybody else does too. It's a contact sport. Yeah. Um, but then it's about helping each other. So once we've hacked through it and we've decided what we're going to do, we don't want everybody to be doing it. 
it's normally two or three out of the team who are on it. One in the lead, the other's helping, but everybody else in support. So we try not to get in each other's way. So that's our philosophy. That that has got us a much higher degree of trust. But we still have issues. We're, you know, like any team, sometimes we can't quite choke out that constructive criticism in the moment. You find it's happening outside the meeting just afterwards. Mm-hmm. I, that's better than never or a week later. Mm-hmm. But it should be happening in in the team, in the meeting, if we're having a meeting. Uh, sometimes we're not good enough, myself included, asking for help or offering help. Mm-hmm. You know, we're too busy getting on, on with our own thing or being slightly defensive of how we're doing it. So that team-based, high-performance, get at it and be really focused on outcomes and achievements. One of the big differences, I think, since the new team got in place is we were very process and inputs orientated mm-hmm. four years ago and now it's very much outcome and achievement outcome and achievement are we doing things you can touch feel lick see stand on because that's what matters yeah. and if those things are customer stuff that's A plus if they're frontline colleague stuff that's a big A if it's helping somewhere along the process that's a B and if they didn't do any of those things, it's a waste of time. <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, simple purpose alignment, it's everything. I, I love that digital banking is a contact sport. Like, I think I might have to make you a T-shirt or some stickers for that because that's, uh, that's a nice Please slogan to go on. <laughs> but um, uh, the, the question I always love to kind of hear the, the sort of outcome from is um, what, what's the best career advice that you've been given? Um, I'm sure you've been given lots of, uh, in terms of different guises, maybe not from just from your, your, your dad and brother around that uh, their dinner table. But, uh, you know, what, what's the, the best advice you've been given? Well, so actually, I will, I'll start with one familiar one. So my grandmother, you've got two of these and one of these, use them in that proportion. Nice. So that's yep. good. Not enough people are good at listening, myself okay. included. It's still good advice for me, never mind anybody else. Um, when I started in consulting, my, I, I asked the question, you know, so how does one get on around here? And the woman I worked for said, keep your head down, keep your nose clean and work hard and the rest will take care of itself. And I think that's absolutely true. There's too many people in this world are trying to figure out the easy way of doing it. And I, th- I think broadly speaking, good will out in, in the long run. In the short run, there's probably a shortcut or a political answer or something else. But, you know, I've always felt that I got fairly treated when I put my back into it and got things done. And I think the, the third, third thing um, that really made a difference to me is my first real mentor, I would say, um, said, look, you you're good at 100 and you're good at zero, so you need to take time out. And I think everybody needs to find out how to take time out. So I, I do work hard, not not crazy, I think, although some people probably would, <laughs> during the week. I work as late as I have to on Friday night. Typically, it's not that late, actually. But mentally, if it's midnight and Friday night, I'll work till midnight. And I take all of Saturday off, unless there's like a payments bust on a system or something, unless there's a real crisis. I take a whole day off because I need to mentally recharge. Mm-hmm. And I have had periods where I haven't been able to take that time out. And for me, at least, it exhausts me. I think for most humans, in it, and it's not the same for everybody. It's not everybody should take Saturday off. <laughs> That's not the, the guidance. Find the off switch yeah. to refresh. And if you do those three things, you go a long way. Yeah, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly in my world. Com- completely with that. It's, um, you know, the sort of the harder you work, the luckier you get type 
approach. Gary Blair. Com- completely, completely, uh, right. <laughs> completely agree with that one. So doesn't work on my golf though. Does it not? No. <laughs> well, there's always an exception to the rule, isn't yes, there? there is. but, uh, so but it, it works at work at least. It doesn't work on the golf course. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming in. Really appreciate you making the time anyway. Um, where can people learn a little bit more about you? I'm always available. If somebody wants to ping me, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can see me there. I'm not on Twitter, unlike some people know who I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> so you can get me through that. Um, I, I typically don't correspond on link, LinkedIn, but if you're on LinkedIn, you've got something interesting, then I kind of take it offline because for my cyber security footprint, I want to be pretty careful about what I have out there for obvious reasons, makes, working in a bank. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm, there are bits and pieces of me on YouTube. You think they're funny. Uh, my kids think they're hilarious, but, but as in terrible <laughs> or embarrassing and awkward is the way my younger daughter describes it. Um, I would highly recommend them. Like, genuinely, uh, everybody listening, go and go and look up uh, Andy on on YouTube right now. There's some really good fun stuff in there. Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter. Unlike Andy, uh, thanks for all for now. Speak to you soon.